sat beside me is another racing driver from Down Under. Uh, this one is the first that can call himself an F1 uh, race winner. Joining me is Mark Weber. Thank yeah. you for joining me, Mark. No worries, Eugene. No worries. How's things going with yourself at the moment? You're yeah. uh, to and fro. You never stop. Yeah. You're a bit like DC and the others. You're, yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, as you'll find out in a few years, it takes, uh, you know, the the... the the post the post career is uh is an interesting journey in itself as well finding the the gaps that we missed from racing so um, I'm very very lucky to have extended some of those partnerships when I was racing so uh, those those uh the they keep me busy which is great uh, sometimes you think you just want to chill out and and have a bit more uh, time to yourself and your family but uh, it is a fine line because um, you become very non-relevant very very fast so uh i'm just making hay white last and i'm enjoying the people i'm working with so yeah involves a bit of travel a bit of tv work um doing some work with different partners around the world and uh yeah and it also engages me you know it keeps me learning every day is a school day so uh when you get out of your bubble from competing um which is relatively straightforward because that's what you're professional at where you should be uh you know enjoying that component to a degree but then obviously it really does start in city street when you when you get out of that um and as i say use it or lose it so you can't just uh you know i'm not a great beach guy just chilling out uh and doing nothing so yeah so still still doing a bit of travel mate and um but i think i've got the timing right uh, which is you know i'm sure we'll talk a bit more about it but um you know it is a it's a it's a big uh it's a challenging point to to come to that period in your life where you need to stop your profession and, and move on to the next phase of your life it's not easy finding that next career path but mm-hmm. i think you get the gift of the gab and that helps <laughs> whenever you're looking at a commentary career and yeah. uh, yeah. you and dc bounce off each other well yeah. and uh, the f1 commentary you guys have really changed the scene there made it really interesting to listen to and um yeah i think that's something you can continue for a lot of years yet yeah you've got to enjoy it mate i think you know having a having a passion i just go to work when it's the tv side is i'm trying to make the customer which is a viewer at home enjoy the sport a bit more if possible um yes we can get very technical we can get very boring we can lose people but i think it's important that you know working with dc is very easy obviously he's a he's a master at it and um you learn a lot of him in terms of how we can project to the to the tv and, and make people enjoy it yes we don't want to be trivial and sort of uh be patronizing to the drivers because we were once in the boxing <laughs> ring so to speak as well and they're certainly doing a very um you know it's it's not a job for everyone formula one you know driving those cars but um we want to you know make it relevant to the people at home and we clearly we go to different venues around the world and there's always lots of different stories along the way and and um you know we just want to shed a bit of light on those and i enjoy putting the people in the cockpit, you know, putting them into the car if I can, as best I can to try and display what, uh, I suppose, the athletes, because as you know, our sports are greatly misunderstood in terms of the, the human performance side and what concentration, focus and the consequences that are involved. Yeah. More so a few men on two wheels and four wheels, but, um, you know, there is there is accidents. And so, yeah, just trying to put a bit of colour into the TV. and But it is daunting sometimes talking live on TV and, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, we screw it up, you know, every now and again, obviously, but um, we just uh, we just roll with it, and that's part of the fun. <laughs> so you've had a very established four wheel career, but could have went either way, right mm-hmm. from the beginning. Then your dad had a motorcycle dealership, so yeah. you yeah. grew up with a passion for two wheels and four wheels. Mm-hmm. And did you ride a motorbike before mm-hmm. getting into like a car? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So I dad had a Yamaha dealership for about twenty five years. So. Yeah, YZ80s, YZ125s, 250s, and uh, yeah, so we grew up in some two-strokes there, and, and um, we also had a, a small farm out of town, which was a small farm in Australia, but obviously a pretty big farm in, in uh, I suppose, the rest of the world, with a few thousand acres, so uh, that was great for me to, 
I didn't realize at the time how fortunate I was just for dad to display to me about having responsibility and consequences for actually using machinery and at a young age going out and, and riding those bikes said, mate, there's a jerry can, yeah. you know, knock yourself out, have some fun, but you know, you can hurt yourself. So just try and concentrate, which is obviously very hard when you're young, you know, young men aren't the best at that in terms of uh, we deal with the consequences after. But um, I think that rural upbringing was great for me. Um, I had an older sister too, so she was pretty good at sport too. So, um, so was, did you rope your sister into riding a motorbike as well? She did a little bit on the bikes, but she was generally um, into swimming and netball and, and other things like that. But in terms of, uh, I I also did a lot of swimming. I did a lot of well, cricket and rugby league and AFL and I played lots of different sports so that was great grounding for me to learn um, how to lose how to be in a team environment at a, at a young age and dad and force that or both my parents did actually because I think you know when it comes to curriculum and uh, concentrating at school it wasn't exactly the most uh, natural uh, sort of nine to five for me and I think that they knew me my mum and dad that it was good for me to focus on something that I enjoyed so that was the case with sport and the motorbike shop and then being around mechanics and whatnot and sort of seeing yeah all that side of it that uh, comes with preparing uh, mechanical machinery. Australia are absolutely brilliant with uh, sport mm-hmm. and especially for kids so you were growing up you were playing all those different sports you've got the weather of course as well but you guys get out of bed mm-hmm. you go out and do your sport and mm-hmm. Uh, you can see that with uh, a lot of the guys that I've spoken with already growing up down under. There's just such, such a sporting culture, which is um, something that's coming more and more to Europe, but we don't get out of bed just as early as you guys <laughs> down under. Yeah, I think that you're right. Weather is a key component. Obviously, if it's daylight and it's more appetizing to get out, you can you can go out and do it. Obviously, it's uh, it's a little bit less of a chore if it's you know sideways rain and blowing a hurley, then it's not quite as fun. Obviously, you need the motivation to take that on, but over, over time, it might wear you down. We're in Australia, yeah, it's, it's, um, there is an opportunity to enjoy uh, sport. I know certain schools, like well, kids are surfing before school. You know, they will surf and then they go to school and, you know, they, they can do that. Um, and they're still smashing it at school and doing a great job. But for them, it's normal to um, be in bed. I think they get into bed a bit earlier as well. Um, yeah. But naturally, having spent a lot of time in the UK, and I know you're... Your home country too, mate, in those sort of regions of the world where the weather's a little bit stickier, you know, people might, you know, spend a little bit longer in the bars and, um, you know, have a bit more of a, have a good crack, as they say. So, um, you know, sporting, you know, the recreational side of sport, let's say, is, is more uh, revel, re- relevant in Australia because, um, yeah, we have that, that weather and, and uh, that opportunity. But, of course, they have a few, as we call them in Australia, schooners as well, and a few schooners in the centre as well. <laughs> But when you were a kid then, it must have been a lot more difficult to watch the races. I remember being able to watch the European races um, during the day, but did your parents allow you to stay up? Because it must have been yeah. got to midnight on a Sunday yeah, night yeah. before school. Sensational point, mate. Yeah, I was always fighting with mum and dad about you know, watching a Formula One race or watching you know, Kevin Swanson, Mick Dillon and Wayne Rainey and the boys in the 500s because the time zone was, you know, 80% of the season was yeah. a disaster. So um, sometimes I'd go to bed and then get back up because it was like midnight or one in the morning. So... You know, dad would wake me up or sometimes he'd conveniently forget to wake me up, which I'd be pissed off with because he knew that I'd, um, you know, of that age, obviously you can't wake yourself up. You've, you've got to uh, have some help. So, um, and the Indy 500 was a classic too because I used to love watching that. Like I'd watch every single lap of the Indy 500, which takes some serious commitment when you're that really? age just to sit there and watch it. And dad's snoring his head off, you know, trying to watch it with me. I said, oh, dad, you see that? It was amazing. Like, yeah, son, I got that. But he was just obviously sound asleep. So, um it was, yeah, time zone wise, it was brutal. And I remember, like, even like magazines and sort of getting down to the news agency and, and reading results two weeks 
you know, the, the, mm. the magazine would be two weeks out of date by the time you got it and just sort of reading it before the old big thing called the internet. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, you needed to be pretty committed to, to, to follow those sports, especially even on TV. Yeah. But that instilled uh, incredible passion for the sport inside yeah. of you then because uh, to get up every day like that, I remember watching the European races, like I said, as a kid, but then even them three flyaways at the end of the year, 500 Grand Prix and then MotoGP and getting up to, to watch those, same idea, setting my alarm. But the fact that you did that for eighty <laughs> percent of them the other way around, that shows uh, that you really had a love for it. Yeah, and I, that's... Know, I loved it. And uh, you're right. I mean, all of us at that age we were very impressionable, weren't we? We we love watching our heroes, and and you would have been the same in terms of. Yeah, I used to love you know doing little helmet designs and just trying. I think when you're that passionate about the sport, then ultimately you want to, you know, you are dreaming about it. You are, of course, it's a it's a it's an absolute fairy tale to try and you know get to that level and race. Uh, on the toughest tracks in the world against the toughest people in the world with the fastest cars in the world or the fastest bikes in the world in your case and yeah you just break it down and keep working hard and ultimately you get there yeah nowadays things are a little bit easier with the internet and sky planner yeah you exactly, just record yeah, it up. yeah exactly mate you can you can uh, yeah it's certainly a lot more a lot more flexible these days but for us yeah you needed to be you need to be bloody committed that's for sure you know get up and even change the old memory just have to stand up and you know go and change the channel and you know we sound like absolute geriatrics mate now don't <laughs> you're younger than me but it, oh, mate time yeah it does go quick that's for sure <laughs> and uh you said you rode a little bit of motorbikes when you were a kid because you grew up in new south wales in, in the bush then you decided to, to race some carts. Was yeah. anybody else in your area racing? Uh, did you look up to somebody yeah, locally? That's right, yeah. So again, really, really lucky. There was a local a local go-kart track along with a motocross track. So it was a facility um, only about five miles from, from where, I, where, where our house was. And um, yeah, like the dirt bike, and I really, really enjoyed it. But obviously there was, again, obviously a few injuries here and there. And I never raced, actually, never physically entered a, a bike race. Uh, there was a flat track there as well, um, but Dad used to sponsor some other kids and help them with you know with the, with the bike shop. Obviously, it was in his in his interest to support the local bike racing fraternity because he had a the track was the, sorry the shop was pretty close to the track, which was just a bit of a fluke. Um, and I think Casey Stoner rode there. You know, a lot of guys had really? ridden on that track, and they used to call it Kamagatsa. Kamagatsa was the track because it was actually a really there was a lot of injuries at that track actually, so it was a pretty punchy old venue, and the dirt was certainly not very soft it didn't rain there much so she was she was a pretty tough old venue um and even alex briggs actually who's valentina rossi's uh, mechanic and was mix and i mean he's been around forever rossi talks about funny stories about going to my old man's shop and buying buying parts and spares so anyway so yeah i did a bit of that and then there was a go-kart track as i say next door to it and a friend of mine matthew hinton was uh, his dad was racing midgets at the time so sort of oval racing um midget midget cars and um Matt was then looking to get into go-karts and I saw his go-kart in the garage one day and said, yeah, I'd love to have a crack at it. So sure enough, you know, a few weeks later, went out and drove the go-kart and just absolutely did my dad's head in. You know, I thought, yeah, this is, I just loved it. I mean, I love the bike, but obviously the go-kart was, you know, something that I felt that, you know, related a bit more to my dreams in terms of following the Formula One and I wanted to get into the go-kart. So, um, yeah, so... Yeah, we got a go-kart and, and I think, you know, it was a very modest car to start with because Dad just wanted to see how really how hungry and how motivated I probably was towards it, but it wasn't a flash in the pan. And uh, yeah, uh, loved it and started racing cars. I think that is the key. You can imagine being a father, you would hear your kids saying, yeah, yeah I want to go kart racing and it's just kind of that thing. Okay, let's just see after a week if he still wants it yeah. then after two weeks. But yeah. that is it. It's persistence, isn't it? it is. You wake up every morning. So, got a, yeah. any chance of a kart yet? Yes. And uh, yeah. that's, that's the... 
the only way <laughs> if you just keep yeah, on I did knocking. His in, mate. I did his head in. I wanted to be <laughs> at the track. I wanted to actually sort of ride the push bike out to watch the other guys drive their carts and stuff. So I was like, that wasn't going to go away. You can see how keen I was. Yeah. So you yeah. ended up um, racing some carts, and within a few years became a New South Wales champion as well. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I mean, I was definitely a little bit the wrong size for karting. But Dad, being pretty clever, he was. He said, "Well, you know, it's he." had the vision more probably definitely than I did, you know, 13, 14, you're not sure what you bloody want, but you know, you know, I was, I really loved the karting and, um, you know, being, I was getting a bit bigger in size, which was frustrating in terms of the karting. So he said, well, if we, if we're clever financially with go-karts, not get carried away, just be modest with our equipment and modest with the calendar and pick certain events that we could do, as I say, won the state championship, um, in Orange, not far from Bathurst, um, in, what was it, 92, 93, somewhere in there, I think it was 92. Um, and try and save a bit of money to go car racing because obviously it gets so, so expensive so fast. And, um, and Formula Ford racing was what was the next step. And I did a test. So we organised a test with me with some other guys and that test went absolutely brilliant. And I just felt at home on a bigger track with more power. You know, the cars were more docile. Yes, they're bigger cars compared to a go-kart. So it's a whole different thing. And that's where you see sometimes guys that are exceptional in karting and really can't do the right. shift into cars and sometimes they struggle to get into that it's a really really big difference i don't know what it's like it's hard to have a, i suppose a comparison with it's a, the little mini bikes that some of the guys ride and uh, then go to something bigger but now we had a similar scenario growing up but we weren't as smart as you where you realize <laughs> okay i'm i'm pretty big for a cart so you did a couple of years yeah. moved to formula ford where you yeah. could excel yeah. but a lot of us guys i'm not a, a big rider but there was some guys that were just kind of obsessed with one two five grand prix race and that was where I'm going to start out in Ireland or the UK and I want to become British champion and then move to Grand Prix there. But it wasn't logical. Mm. If you're oversized, this, you're given away so much lap time in a straight line. The logical thing would have been to do what you did was to go four-stroke race and yeah. move into the Super Sport Series yeah. where a lot of us delayed that and you lost a few years with yeah. that. So yeah. the fact that you had uh, your dad had that foresight to move mm. into single-seater racing because you were bigger than kids your age was smart. Yeah, yeah. No, that worked out pretty well, mate. So... Um and then we, I raced a couple of years in Australia. I was racing for Van Diemen at the time, which is a, a Formula Ford manufacturer based in, in their factories in the UK, but they did we, they sent cars to Australia. And uh, they were watching my progress and they said, well, maybe we could do a test in the UK, which, uh, which again went very, very well. I was fast in Australia and I got the most pole positions and I was really, really quick, but I just, was, I just wasn't prepared to finish second in any races. So I just didn't put the championship together and, and I wanted to exactly win every race and also technically I was absolutely useless sort of constructing the weekend was set up and I just wanted to be also stubborn and arrogant on you know I can do I can do it I don't don't muck around with the car because I saw that as a weakness that I need to you know that I need you need to make the car better for me because right. I'm just like you know sort of insecure to say I can just deal with this I'll just I'll, I'll get on I just want to keep driving so that was uh, a problem for me in the early years in, in formula racing um but i cracked that nut later on in, in 98 so two years later i started to work in a much more professional environment and i had it drummed into me that technically i've got to start getting my head down yeah. as well and that was a, a big a big big moment so um yeah so when i came to europe so back a few years i went came to europe i, I won the formula ford festival in 96 which is a huge a huge race um in formula ford uh, in the world and um, so that was a great opportunity and from then on I got sort of really heavily subsidised drives because otherwise I would never ever have. I mean I think if people knew what my family put into the racing they'd be blown away just to help I mean we were so lucky how small 
a commitment they put into my racing. We just went from one stepping stone to the other in terms of the old sponsor and then a manufacturer picked me up and then it's like I just, I, I really did fluke that sort of two or three years in Europe very, very early. Otherwise, because at the time, mate, the pound was 33, you know, you you, you yeah. an Australian dollar opening at 33p. So, you know, I was working as a racing instructor at Brands Hatch, getting paid, I think it was like 44 quid a day, driving there in the 1.1 B Ridge Fiesta from, from bloody, you know, from Norwich down to Brands Hatch, which is already crackers when you think about it. Um, we'd all line up at the Dartford Toll, you know, eight or nine of us. Dan Wilden, bless him, who's not with us anymore, passed away a few years ago in IndyCar. But we'd all line up and we just we'd screw the boom gate because we just put one quid in and we're trying to all escape, escape <laughs> underneath the boom awesome. gate. Yeah, eight or nine of us. So, so all those things that you know, you just uh, you know, one pound coin. I looked at that and said, yeah, this is, you know, that's a powerful currency, and I need to buddy, I needed to watch my pennies early on. So is that where you based yourself in Norwich whenever you up ship and move from Australia? Yeah, so I moved to Attleboro in Norwich because that's where the team was based for the first year or so. And then we thought, look, that's just in the middle of nowhere. Then we, after um, about six months up there, we moved down into, let's say, whatever is the Silicon Valley Motorsport, more in Buckinghamshire and sort of where all the Formula 1 teams are. Yeah. Not that I think I was years away from, from having to make those decisions, but even like all the Formula 3 teams and just it was much more central for for travel to be in the sort of Midlands area, yep. Well, it seems like whenever you were a teenager, that arrogance that you described, it is a strength whenever you're a teenager, <laughs> but the important thing is that once you grow up and wise up, you have to kind of set that aside because you have to have that kind of belief that, nah, yeah, I'm, I'm good enough. I don't want to change the car. I can do this, but that doesn't really help you when you, you right. move up through the categories. Yeah. So you've got to be smart enough to realize that. You've got to listen, mate, haven't you? I think you could, all of us can relate to that. At certain points in your career, you get better at listening because there's been a lot of people that have been through this path before. And, um, and yeah, whether it's the Monday to Friday component where it's life and being professional or being in the car technically or whether it's press and media or whatever section, there's always, you know, um, as I say, religious school day and you learn that uh, how to do things better. And so if you can listen um, a little bit, you know, well, it goes in uh, instead of just being on transmit, then it's good. Yeah. And after that, your career took an unexpected turn then. So after doing carton and single seaters, then at quite a young age, you went sports car racing for mm-hmm. a few years with uh, Mercedes. So was that something that you ever imagined doing at that stage or did that just come out of the blue? Um, well, because it was really just financial as well because they paid for my former back end of my former three season in 97. Um, I did sign a two-year contract with them and they wanted to also then have me do... Um, well, because it's a funny, it's an interesting story because um, uh, what happened, Gerhard Berger was really, really ill in, I think, for the 97 um, German Grand Prix, mate. So this is like, mate, I've just done Formula Ford in 96. I've yeah. just won the Formula Ford Festival. I'm watching still my heroes in Formula One, and then Mercedes rang up and said that Alex Wirtz has to replace Gerhard Berger. He was a test driver at Benetton, and he was also racing for the sports car team in Mercedes. And we'd like you to replace Alex at the next race. I'm like, guys, this is this is 800 horsepower sports car <laughs> with you know with you know huge big step, massive step for me. I was only like six months ago or four months ago driving a Formula Ford, and. You know, I probably had the balls to say, look, guys, I think this is a sniff early. We're getting a bit carried away here, yeah. but I certainly want to stay in touch. So Roberto Moreno took that opportunity. He was a, you know, a very, very old, established, you know, safe pair of hands for Mercedes to take, and, and, and they did well in that race. But So we kept communications open. I tested them for Mercedes, which went well. They then paid for my rest of my former three season, as I said. And then, um, yeah, I did. I enjoyed racing for them. That was when I learned how to be professional yeah. or a better professional, let's say. We had working with Bern Schneider, who was an incredible individual and, and really helped me a lot as a sort of bit of a father figure to get through that 
scenario in my career and, and culturally as well. Like it was brutal for me to, I was living in Stuttgart then for six months, which was just really, really, really testing for me, you know, as, as, as a youngster, a sort of 22 year old sort of going, okay, this is a bit of an interesting environment. And you go for dinner, no English spoken, you know, started to slowly get a grasp of obviously the German language, which I have a little bit of, but not much to this day. But, um, and then, yeah, that was, going great until we went to Le Mans in 99 and we started, uh, the car was very dangerous and, and all, you know, we had a lot of cars flipping in that regulation, whether it was a Porsche, BMW or, or Mercedes. Yeah, I've seen those flips. Yeah. They were scary. Yeah, horrible flips. So we, we had some big problems at Le Mans 99. That was the only race we did that year as well because it was a very condensed program because sports cars were struggling big time at that time in terms of the championship wasn't really firing. And a young driver to be involved with the manufacturer is great, but you still need to be racing a lot. So we went to Le Mans with as favourites to, to do really well and, and we the car was very unsafe and, and the car was taken off basically and I was involved in two really nasty accidents and then I sold to Mercedes, I think it's best we, you know, the program's over. They said, we want you to go and do, T, can you go and do DTM now? Um, or maybe we can look at IndyCar. Greg Moore, who was racing at IndyCar at the time with Foresight, had just signed a Penske contract and he was going to go and race for Roger and then tragically he got killed at the end of that year as well. So I'm just looking at that guy, I don't want to go to IndyCar. Don't want to do indie, I don't want to do DTM. I have to get back to Formula One somehow. Yeah. I want to get back to my first love and and um, managed to do that with um, Eddie Jordan introduced me to, to Paul Stoddard because um, I was hassling Eddie. I followed him to a petrol station and just kept bugging him and he still takes the piss out of me to this day how much of a pain in the ass I was. But, um, but <laughs> Did was you know Eddie that, before yeah, that stage? Or not did you just... really, but I just, I just made him know me. So um, yeah, brilliant. I just used to just drive up to the factory, tra- train in the gym there, just be, I just, I just exposed myself to people that I wanted to, can I do a test with the Jordan? Can I do something? And and even if I was miles away, I probably was completely delusional how far away I was from because obviously, you know, I had no money for Eddie. So Eddie likes um, the, 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 the rustling of some notes, which I didn't have any. So, um, so yeah, but at least, you know, just Eddie was great. He introduced me to Paul Stoddard and Paul Stoddard had a former 3000 team, which is a step below F1. And then I started with Stoddy. The team was not the best performing team, but... We had a fantastic start to the season and, you know, I was leading the championship after a few races and, and won the race at Silverstone and we finished third in the championship with a pretty pretty average operation, to be honest, and Stoddy would be the first to admit to that. Um, but, yeah, then Flavio picked me up and got the Benetton test contract and I was back on the rails. Well, you mentioned the, your uh, persistence with Eddie Jordan and so that's something that you <laughs> bugged your dad as a kid. Please, can I get a cart? Please, can I get a cart? And uh, no, Eddie Jordan would have loved that persistence as well. As much yeah. as uh, you might have been worried to annoy somebody that's an F1 team boss, I think uh, that showed that you really were keen. And yeah. I think he would have loved that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, it, and he still does say that to this day. Yeah, it was sort of like I could not help be sort of, uh, it, well, you were frustrating as hell, but like, because I couldn't do much with you, but I really admired um, how you're going about it. And I wanted to try and help, which he did. So. Um, I never tell him that, obviously. I never tell him he did a good job for me because he, t- he reminds me all the time, which he will after this, mate. I'm with him in half an hour for lunch. So, um, you know, he'll keep, ba- he'll keep badgering on. He, you know, what he's like never lets it go. But um, he's right. It was it was, uh, it was was a great opportunity for me. So, yeah. And then also the doorstep of F1 test driver for Benetton. And then, um, yeah, then I got my first opportunity with Paul Stoddard in, in Formula 1, driving for Minardi, which is a very small team, obviously. Horrendous budget, as in no budget, but um, Italian passion, you know, trying to put it all together and a bit of chaos, obviously. But um, I had a two-race contract to start with, which was brutal, Melbourne and Malaysia uh, for the start of the season. But I finished fifth in my first Grand Prix, which was just extraordinary. And Stoddy was 
stoked to say the least. He was on the radio. So before the race, he said, look, just if we can finish this race, because the car had only done like 18 or 20 laps in testing in one go. The thing was so unreliable. We had hydraulics, we had diff problems, we had gearbox, we had all sorts of issues with it. It was late. Um, and then as the race went on, um, yeah, I was running fifth, which was just, there was a lot of attrition um, attrition in the race and crashes and shunts and reliability and more running well. And Stoddy went from sort of just, if you can just finish to like, you know, yeah, Casala was catching me. Mikasala was coming from sixth place to try and put pressure on me for fifth. And he said, under no circumstances should you let him pass. Got right. Yeah, so he got pretty greedy pretty quickly. So I uh, managed to keep Salo out and we got a lot of world championship points, which was great for Stoddy financially for the constructors. Yeah. I remember watching that race back in 2002. So mm. I didn't know of you through practice and qualifying, but then in the race, must have been with the... the British commentators were getting excited as well yeah. whenever you were coming up through. And yeah. I guess there's a lot of pressure on you as well. There'd been and a bit of a gap since David Brabham was in F1 and then you yeah. arrive at uh, yeah. Melbourne F1 race, young kid. You get on the block, uh, baptism of fire was uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It was a big crowd. It was obviously a huge crowd. Um, and as you know, mate, in motorsport, the crowd, it's hard for them to be knowledgeable on everything. They just thought that, you know, that... There's a lot going on in the background, but um, there was certainly no lack in enthusiasm for the, from the punters, and it was a huge crowd. They got me in the podium, which I didn't say. You know, they said, "Look, I'm not going up there. I finished fifth. I don't, you know, want to get a podium one day in my in my in my career. You know, fair and square." But, Are they what um, they wanted you to go up on the podium? They said, "Yeah, go on the podium." So the other guys had left, which was right. Michael. I don't know who finished. You know, I think it was a. I think Rubens won. No, Rubens got taken in the first corner. I don't know. The podium would have been a random one. Yeah. But Michael did win the race. Um, but they said, you know, because the crowd was cheering for me they wanted me up there it was hilarious so uh the promoter Ron Walker who was you know he was pulling it all together and he said we'll sort this out with Bernie later on if there's any problems so um yeah <laughs> crowd went ballistic so that was my first podium um in Formula One but it was fifth place and at that stage then when you'd moved from Formula 3000 through to F1 and that's essentially when you went pro but were you actually getting paid at that stage or was it like an opportunity to kind of dangle the car for this two race contract and see how it goes yeah so I was um driving for Minardi racing for them in the season but I was also the Benetton test driver so I was getting paid to test for Benetton yeah so okay. as a test driver I was getting paid from them yeah but there was no Minardi salary so but Stoddy knew that 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 I was I was getting um yeah so I was, my main contract was really te- as a test driver but financially but obviously the, the the most important thing was to perform well on the track of the races and it wasn't an easy path after that what it should have been whenever you had this contract with Benetton things look good and it always chopped and changed looking yeah. at how things went and then with Jaguar as well and you had a big old period there where the results weren't going because you weren't in, in the right seat as well yeah. so it must have been tough because whenever you arrive you kind of want to make an impression and, and progress mm-hmm. through the years but there was a period of maybe five years where it, it was difficult. That's right mate yeah it was um, because Jaguar went really really well 03 was um, my stock was really high I was performing really really well, well the the perception was I was going really really well and, and, and I had a lot of teams um, when I say a lot McLaren uh, Williams and Renault wanting my services uh, when I was under contract to Jaguar and um, yeah so management wise was sort of like okay we've got a call to make here Renault hadn't um, so yeah I left I left Jaguar for Williams and I had a, a strong offer from Renault as well. Um, Renault hadn't won any races at that point, so it was sort of like it was ironic that I'd been under contract with them as a test driver. But they're still mm-hmm. like sort of, and Williams was performing better. And I'm like, mm, I've got a call to make here. Ron Dennis said that you know um, you could drive for McLaren, but um, 
not being managed by Flavio Vittori, I will not entertain you driving for our team. So he was like, if you get rid of Flavio, you can drive for us. Um, So, which I didn't do. Um, So in the end, I went to Williams um, and that was probably not one of my most inspired decisions in terms of the the timing. You know, I probably, I mean, Renault, I think I would have won Formula One races earlier. Um, Obviously, Fernando um, traditionally has been not the easiest character with his teammates so that would have been you know that could have been a, a bit of a, a flashpoint uh in our relationship we always got him pretty well but i think that might have been a, a challenging would have been a high performing car but you could have come out there with flames on your back in terms of you know trying to get out of there so it would have been that would have been an interesting dynamic um so william jess i was i was i was teammates with Heidfeld and rosberg for two years and then i managed to get out of that because flavio come to me said oh this red bull lot they're going to get pretty serious pretty soon i'm like wow really we think because at the time it was a bit of a joker team you know in terms of there was obviously a lot of there was a bit of a marketing component but it was they didn't have the technical resources and the people they hadn't didn't have the human capital to get the job done in terms of designing a brilliant car and then they started to do that with the with the with the um you know thanks to david coulthard who who got the right people in from from teams and, and you know a bit of mclaren there was a bit of actually believe it or not benetton then so i knew some of the old guys that were going there and then i elected to leave williams and go to red bull which was one of the better what well, was definitely the best decision in my career even in your first season with red bull then you you managed the podium whenever things weren't uh quite right but there's seen you seem to have a love affair with the Nürburgring track yeah. you got your first podium 2007 there and then two years later your first win at Nürburgring there's yeah. something special about yeah, that yeah there is yeah, I don't know what it is I think it's a really um it's a big it's a it's very much a, a, an understeery sort of circuit so I can you know I, I love leaning on the front end really hard so I think that track has uh, always suited me pretty well um but actually the race the first podium race was was a really dangerous wet grand prix so um there was a lot of attrition in that race and um you know i was always sort of towards the front um but then uh yeah got the podium which was great and uh and the team was on on its way up you know so it was it was moving forward definitely with um with adrian newey now on board and and come 2000 and not uh, so 2008 was my last season with david as, as my teammate and then Sebastian Vettel arrived in 2009 um, as a young Red Bull protege. And then Adrian was really getting his bone, his teeth into the into the bones of the regulation for, for that year's car. And we started to really, really be a strong team. It's interesting listening to you because I can hear see the correlation between different stages of your career. That you and your dad had that foresight to take you out of a cart early to get into a single seater. And there's the same thing where you could see, oh, this Red Bull a lot are getting pretty serious. So yeah. a lot of people often wait until a team's winning and then <laughs> say, okay, let's go there. Yeah. And even uh, you did something similar with uh, Mitch Evans, the driver that you look after. Right. You yeah. got Mitch into Formula E yeah. before it was big because you had the foresight to see that this is the right way to go. And sure enough, yeah. Mitch is in the yeah. right place now. And a lot of other drivers are coming knocking on the doors and the doors are closed. That's right. Yeah, I think it's it's it is it's not always easy to look. You know, we, we get the calls wrong every now and again, but you've got to it's intel, it's preparation, understanding where you know the funding is, where the marketing is, where the championships are starting to come along, the exposure. You know, who's who's interested, and of course the manufacturers are all over Formula E now. So Mitch was a bit you know tail between the legs to start with, sort of like Formula E. I'm not sure. You know, said so my well, you know, I think it's gonna it's going places, mate, and it's it's gonna be a really really. You know, after Formula One, it's it's actually you know very very hotbed in terms of the driving standards, incredibly high. The 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 level of talent in that in that category now is extraordinary, and the teams are really really top notch as well. So for him, 
That's great. And um, yeah, so when you can, try to have an opportunity to read the scenario in front. Um, and it's about people, as you know, mate. It doesn't take much. A couple of people leave and then the team is in trouble um, because it's such a technical sport in, 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 in tennis or golf or, you know, you don't have a huge team around you every few. But, you know, with our sport, you know, you really do need to have um, everything in harmony because then as a rider, you're the last focus or the driver, you're the last focus to execute on everyone's uh, remit is, uh, is getting the job done technically. From speaking with Mitch, it's clear that it was a very kind thing you did for him as well because um, not easy coming from down under, as you well know, and you give him a, a lifeline and uh, you pass on your experience, but also allowing him to, to live at your place yeah, and yeah, taking him yeah. under your wing. Yeah. That was something you did out of the the kindness of his heart and yeah. uh, I think he did say he was going to repay you financially I'm not sure we can listen yeah. back <laughs> yeah 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 no he can he can whatever but look at the end of the day I think um, yeah it's it's there's a bit of both obviously you're trying to you're trying to show um, you know the right avenues and sort of seeing the fences that you can knock down early that you can show because you know this is it's a very much a one way street you know you've only got one crack at this yeah. and um, yeah when he first came over um, you know the there was a family in, in New Zealand um, who have been brilliant for New Zealand motorsport the Giltrap family and they rang me years ago nearly 10 years now they said you know Mitch just needs a bit of a guiding hand when he gets over there and, and it's tough and Mitch was 16 I mean that's un- unbelievable you know he did you know he stayed with us for a while or lived at the end of the driveway and house there which is great and so yeah when you can do that it's quite rewarding when you yeah. see the journey they go on and the ups and downs and and you know when it gets emotionally really tough and and as it's you know we see that in you know the listeners will be up you know whether it, whatever it is business or sport or you know you you do have the ups and downs of trials and tribulations of life and and you've got to dust yourself down and sort of keep going stay positive and and it's got to be someone so much of you you know if you've got a goal and you said okay well you know why can't it be me why can't I be you know it's just, it's you know not taking no for an answer you know being stubborn to a point and working out the reasons how and why you should get there and that's what I try to instill in Mitch is it's just like you know you think it's greener somewhere else you think no one else has got problems you know trying to get this done well yeah everyone's battling the cause here mate um, and the white flag's easy a lot of people can pop the white flag up you know that's that's the easy that's the easy cop out but um it's a long flight home with your tail between your legs, so um, yeah, you got to hang it out. No, you guys certainly didn't. Your F1 career is, is pretty impressive, and most of your success come with Formula 1, and you finished top three in the championship a few yeah. times. Mm-hmm. Um, going on to your, your last race in Brazil, I think you, you were in fifth in the championship before the mm-hmm. last race of, of Brazil then, yeah. so I bet there must have been that feeling of, God, it would be nice to finish uh, this and edge into the top three. And a lot went on in that race. So yeah. I remember watching with Lewis Hamilton getting a uh, drive through and yeah. you managing to secure third in, in the championship. So yeah. um, was that an emotional moment whenever you crossed the line in your F1 career? It was. It was really emotional, mate. Actually being strapped into the car for the last time. That's when it really hit me that it's actually, I'm going to do this for the last time. Um, yeah, you know, Gen my number one mechanic, sort of put me in and said, mate, you know, all the best. And it's sort of like, yeah, it's the whole thing is coming to an end. So I was um, really cool up to that point. And then during the race, obviously, visor down and, and and you you want to, you know, I've clearly, you know, it's just another Grand Prix, um, but it's your last one. And I took my helmet off because it was, you know, on the in-lap, I, I just wanted to thank the people and show there's actually someone human in there and, and thank the, I, I'd won the Brazilian Grand Prix twice, so I'd, I always enjoyed racing there. And so to thank them and thank, fans at home or whatever just to sort of just for for to show the human component that we're in here and I you know I gave 
um, they gave me a lot and I gave a lot to the sport. So you just want to say goodbye in, in, in the best way possible. So I was happy to, you know, be on the podium with, um, with Seb and Fernando, um, got the fastest lap of the race and, and off I left the paddock that night. Um, and on the Tuesday I was in a Porsche sports car in, in Portugal. So, um, Portimao. So, you know, I, I intentionally had a, had a clear plan to, to finish when I wanted to on my terms. I could have done another year in F1. I had choices to stay for 14, but I had a handshake with Porsche at the end of 12 to say that, you know, I'm going to, I'll come in 14. Um, and race for the for the for the, in the sports car program, and then sort of an ambassador contract off the back of that. So I was, I was looking at the whole holistic. I wasn't just looking at my racing terms with Porsche. I was looking at actually, you know, when it comes to the business side of you know the extending the the having a long. I could have done one more year with 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 a team in Formula One, and then like okay, maybe the Porsche opportunity wasn't there, and here we are, you know, sort of six seven years later, still you know have a, having a great relationship with Porsche. They've been tremendous to me, and I think it was a very very important decision. In Formula One, you were third in the championship a few times. Uh, it was quite fitting then that whenever you did move to sports car, then with Porsche in 2015, mm-hmm. to land that elusive uh, world title. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that must have been nice. And um, I got asked the question that two career highlights stand out for me, then it surely has got to be becoming a world champion or maybe even Monaco F1 win because that's pretty yeah, special. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think, you know, in 2010, taking the championship to the last race was, was a big battle with. Um, I didn't pick the easiest guys to take on to try and win the championship. Obviously, with Lewis, Fernando, and Sebastian, was a was a great year in two thousand ten to go to the last uh, race, and I led the championship a lot in two thousand ten, which is something I'm clearly I'm proud of. But um, Sebastian led the championship at one race that year, which was the last race. So um, wow. it's, it shows you how tight it was, and. Um, so yeah, but to win Monaco um, twice, and as I think Enzo Ferrari once said, it's sort of like half a world championship at least. So just the one win in terms of what Monaco <laughs> means to the drivers and the team. So um, look, absolutely, I would have loved to, no question about it, won the world title. I think that ultimately I just didn't do enough to get the, the job done. It was hard inside with Red Bull. You know, there was a, it was a, it was there was a very very critical point around Singapore Monza time where they could have um, in Japan give me you know not giving me but the results were the championship was more in my favor than, than than sebastian's at the time they really i think they rolled the dice to to you know if we could have killed the championship off a bit earlier if if um they wanted to flip the positions even it was just at one race even just at brazil it would have been it would have been a, a much more and i was you know i was very it wasn't like i was 15 seconds behind Seb. i was like you know three seconds were right there but i said okay we'll roll the dice to abu dhabi and and see how we go even though it was theoretically much more difficult for him to achieve which it just lined up at the last race so i wasn't looking for a gift i was just saying in certain teams they would have done like that it was just um it wasn't the way it was in red bull with, with sebastian so in my scenario so in the end it was a tough battle but um you know mate i look back in my career and just say i was very lucky I, I enjoyed the porsche more than i would have done in terms of the team camaraderie i, I never had to work with other drivers or drivers before in terms of um, when I say riders, because I know you've done some endurance riding as well, so it's interesting how you have to adapt from the the sort of individual approach of setting the car up and working with a team, and then you've got other drivers. So I enjoyed that, but I was much older, you know. So I enjoyed working with Brendan and Timo, and um, it was a great learning curve for me to to give a lot back to or where I could, and also I had to have a big education too on endurance racing too. Yeah. So it was a nice way to finish. That was nice that you you stepped across and were successful. And- few different disciplines and that shows that you're you're very versatile and you've had a, a hell of a career and 
similar to, to my career with my, my wife Pippa has been a big part of it as well it's mm-hmm. nice to see that yourself and your, your wife Anne you know yeah. you guys have been a partnership yeah. right through your career and mm-hmm. uh, you'll say enough behind every yeah, a great man is a great woman. Yeah, and that's certainly the case for you as well. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Look, I've been I've been very fortunate with Annie. I mean, she we came back over together in '95, and um, yeah, I think that um, it's been um, a tremendously, of course, it is strong relationship, and um, you know the trials and tribulations you go through in terms of you know the ups and downs of your professional career. Um, yeah, it's good to have that sort of consistency in your life and there's enough drama going on on track without having enough drama at home. So I think that, um, you know, she, she's she been around the block in terms of the racing as well, very experienced with it and she knows um, that, yeah, just that, that measured hand and obviously fiercely loyal, which which they are when, they, when, they, when, they, when they're in your corner. They want to they have your interest at heart, which is great. But at the end of the day, it's nice to come back and, you know, have someone that has a pretty good, just a, at least an understanding of, of how the sport operates and ticks, and and I suppose you know if you're a banker or if you if you've got another job or profession and your wife, you know it can work that they have absolutely no idea what your job entails, which is which is absolutely fine as well. But obviously, as you say, in both of our cases, or generally in motorsport, the the, the partner in, in in part your partner in crime has had a bit of exposure to it. I know even with like Alex Virch, Julia Virch, his wife was, you know, she was my uh, PR manager when I was at Benetton, for example. So she's been involved in motorsport. She knows how it all works. Um, And they've been a great team. So, and there's just so many of them, you know, in our sport where, where the, the partnership has, has been born out of, um, you know, meeting each other in that environment. And And then you go from strength to strength. So, Yep, Annie's been great, and uh, yeah, been through some you know tricky phases, whether it's you know losing friends in the cockpit or you know we've we've had to go through some of those tricky trickier days. But the highs outweigh the lows, and uh, yeah, we've been been really blessed to to have and meet great people, travel the world, work with. I mean, I just think some of the people that I've worked with are just absolutely mind blowing, and they've made me a better person because it's just you know they've, they've driven me to be better at what I do and, and um, you know, be disciplined and, and be focused and just and just keep learning. So um, that's what motor racing is great for is it's 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 a very it's it, you can't cut corners with your preparation, you know, in other businesses or, you know, companies they might, you know, they just you know, they might lose a bit of money. But um, you know, with us you could lose money and the performance it's it's very it's every two weeks you get the they get the old P and L sheet out and say this is where our performance is, a stopwatch never lies. So it's a brutal sport when it comes to that. Well, that's been great to, uh, to hear a little bit more about your early career because um, that's the bit that I was keen to hear and coming from down under and you, you would have a very interesting path. <laughs> and uh, yeah, finish this off by saying congratulations on a, a great career. Like everybody gets to be world champion and everybody gets to win a Formula 1 race and you've done both, so well done. Thanks, Eugene. That's a pleasure, mate. And uh, yeah, good luck with the podcast, mate. It's, um, yeah, it's uh, always nice to talk to someone that, uh, yeah, you, you obviously you're plugged in, you, you're going through the journey yourself, having a, having a cracking career yourself, and I'm looking forward to watching you next year, mate. So uh, well done on all that as well. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Top man. <laughs>